This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss with the president of Brady, or the Brady Campaign, Ms. Chris Brown, current policy efforts to try to reduce gun violence. Ms. Brown's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Chris, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. On background, though the first, through rather the first five months of this year, there were 148 mass shootings in the U.S. that killed or wounded nearly 750 individuals. The last of these was the May 31st Virginia Beach shooting that killed 12. As I noted during my April 28th interview with Dr. El Abga, who treated victims of the 1999 Columbine shooting, gun violence in this country is obscene. For example, gun deaths are 96 times higher than in Japan, 55 times higher than in the UK. Gun violence is particularly common in schools. Since 2000, there have been nearly 200 shootings in 43 states at elementary, middle, high schools, colleges, and universities. Research suggests gun violence is explained largely by one fact, gun prevalence. The U.S. makes up less than 5% of the global population, but owns 42% of the world's guns, or 3 million that one in three Americans possess. Ownership is, for example, 150 times higher than in Japan. This fact largely explains why guns are used to commit homicides at a frequent rate or a rate that far exceeds other developed countries. For example, gun homicides in this country are 471 times more prevalent than in the UK. As for whether mental health issues explain U.S. gun violence, the rate of severe mental disorders in this country is not dissimilar than what it is in many other comparable or wealthy countries. With me again to discuss current efforts to reduce gun violence is Brady's Ms. Chris Brown. So with that as uh, introduction, Chris, let me begin by asking, can you briefly uh, provide background on your organization's work? Happy to do that, yes. So Brady is the one of the oldest and, and we like to say the boldest gun violence prevention organization in America. It was founded by Jim and Sarah Brady. I'm sure many of your listeners will recall that Jim Brady served as President Ronald mm -hmm. Reagan's press secretary. He was shot in the line of duty, and he and his wife Sarah devoted the rest of their lives to the enactment of sensible gun laws in this country. His shooter, of course, would have been if... Uh, federal background check system that was uh, working well, was in place at the time, would have been a prohibited purchaser. So he was able to secure the weapon and, uh, and shoot him and others mm -hmm. um, along with President Reagan. And their main focus, of course, was to enact what we now have as the Brady law. That's the law that requires background checks to be done before every gun sale. That took six years and seven votes in Congress, so I don't want to understate how much work that was, but ultimately that was a bipartisan bill passed on unanimous consent by the Senate. Brady continues that work today 
to strengthen our laws both at the federal level and across the states where change and momentum has really taken place. We're also very active and involved in bringing legal cases against gun dealers on behalf of victims who tragically have lost their lives because straw purchases, those are sales to prohibited purchasers, are too often allowed to happen without any punitive elements associated with it. So Brady's very proud of that 30-year history of bringing legal cases. We also are very focused on social norm change, and we have campaigns, including our campaign to end family fire, to emphasize the importance of safe storage. We have over 300 million guns in this country Mm -hmm. in people's homes. 4.6 million children live in homes with loaded and unsecured guns. Eight kids a day are killed or injured with those guns. And we can't be successful as a movement unless we reach across the aisle, unite gun owners, non-gun owners in the common cause to address the epidemic of gun violence in this country. Thank you. So I do have one question about your organization. I did fairly carefully go through your website, and I, I will say I was a little surprised. I didn't see much uh, discussion or programming related to the Second Amendment. Um, you know, obviously, uh, it's been greatly debated, its meaning. Um, so I was curious, to what extent do you actually get at, uh, and I'll search so that people are, are remember, um, again, a well-regulated militia being necessary to secure security of a free state, the right of people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. To what extent do you get into a challenging legal decisions concerning the Second Amendment? Uh, We're very active. Really, we are the organization in the gun violence prevention space who are very active in the courts. As I referenced Mm -hmm. our legal cases, I didn't emphasize the fact that we have established legal precedent in many cases in which the Second Amendment has been interpreted um, and which contours around appropriate public safety measures related to guns have been upheld. So that work continues for us. We just filed actually a couple of weeks ago an amicus brief in a court case in California in which a lower court judge overturned the restriction on assault weapons being sold in California and high-capacity magazines. We, together with other organizations, filed an amicus brief noting the constitutionality under the Second Amendment of those bans, and the Attorney General in California came in and has sought a stay of that ruling during the pendency of the appeal process. So the mm-hmm. stay associated with those, uh, those sales stays in place. And that's a very good question because it's a very important component of what we do. From our perspective, there is no dissonance between appropriate public safety measures designed to ensure that dangerous people don't have ready access to guns, designed to ensure that each of us can walk down the street, go into a movie theater, go to a concert, go to a baseball game or our schools without the fear of being shot. There's nothing inconsistent with those measures and the Second Amendment, and we have been all over every court in this country, every circuit court, in the federal and state system, as well as the Supreme Court, making that point. 
Thank you. So I'll, I'll stand corrected. And for your baseball park, we'll get to that relative to the Virginia shootings. Um, of yeah. course, the shooting at the Alexandria uh, Park. Let me, um, I, I did, I did want to ask a question about polling data, but let's just get into the more substance here. Maybe we can weave that in. So the current Congress, um, the House passed uh, related legislation for the first time in a long while. So could you explain what the House has done relative to banning um, and then uh, they're working on authorizing funding finally for gun uh, research? Yes, happy to do that. Of course, we had a historic election in 2018 where we elected for the first time in over a decade members of the House of Representatives with a gun violence prevention majority. So we have more members now in the House of Representatives who support common sense measures to strengthen our gun laws than those who oppose it. And that's very, very important because as a result of that, we have two bills now that have been passed out of the House of Representatives and the the CDC funding is pending to strengthen our gun laws. First, for the two bills that have already been passed, uh, they are H.R. 8 and H.R. 1112. H.R. 8 expands the Brady background check system at the federal level to ensure that a background check is done effectively before the sale of any gun in this country. Why is that important? It's important because when the federal Brady law was enacted, there wasn't a thing called the Internet. It really didn't exist. Right. Except maybe in Al Gore's mind. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And you didn't have gun shows that were big business. They were a small part of the market, but not like we see now with literally thousands of them happening across the country at any given time. Today, those are big business. And as a result, about one in five guns sold today is sold by a private seller, Mm -hmm. not a federally licensed firearm dealer, who's not technically subject to the federal law. So H.R. 8 says that private sellers who are selling guns in those kinds of sales must conduct a background check before the gun is sold. And that's really important because the federal Brady law, since its enactment, has stopped more than 3 million sales of guns to prohibited purchasers. We have to make make sure, though, that there aren't loopholes and, and that's an obvious one that allow far too many guns to be sold to people who otherwise would not pass a background check. So that's the first bill, H.R. 8, that passed. The second is H.R. 1112. That's a separate measure that passed within a day of H.R. 8 passing. That bill closes what's called the Charleston loophole. Mm-hmm. That's a provision in federal law that allows a gun sale to proceed even when a background check has not come back. So after three days, even where a background check has not come back, the sale proceeds anyway. It's called the Charleston loophole because that's how the shooter at the Charleston AME church got his gun. So both of those bills passed the House. Unfortunately, the current Senate leadership is refusing to bring that up. There are companion measures in the Senate that are pending right now, and I would ask any of your listeners who care about this issue, please call your senator and ask them to pass the Senate equivalent of H.R. 8 and H.R. 1112. That's very, very important measures that will save lives. The last measure that's 
I think, going to be debated in the next couple of days, I certainly hope so, if not this week, then next week, is an appropriation that will be a historic appropriation to fund the Centers for Disease Control to research the issue of gun violence. The CDC hasn't received appropriations to study the issue of gun violence in 20 years. And as a result, we've lost a generation of researchers to this cause or issue, which is unquestionably an epidemic. We're losing 40,000 people a year who are dying on our streets in America, and over 100,000 more, it doesn't get discussed enough, who are shot and injured, who have lifelong injuries, and we're not researching this. It's absurd. So we're very supportive of the $50 million that the House is anticipated to include in the appropriations bill that we hope will pass in the next few days. So that's you're right, fifty million over five years, and the loophole, the Charleston loophole you referenced, that's uh, uh, the uh, current uh, limitation of three business days. Let me, um, and of course you mentioned Mitch McConnell, and of course the president has also said that if these came to his uh, desk, he would uh, obviously and sadly veto these. Um, let me move on to the presidential campaign. And there are, amongst the Democratic candidates, a number of proposals. Uh, Cory Booker has a 14-point plan, amongst others. But before we get into that, um, it is interesting always in these instances. It's somewhat similar to, I guess, uh, the minimum wage. There's a substantial public opinion support of, of raising the minimum wage. Similarly here, uh, somewhat surprising perhaps, but there's substantial public support for um, – uh, our polling data and support thereof. Can you give provide some of that data? Yes. So, for example, on the issue of expanding the background check uh, requirement to all sales, uh, the Quinnipiac poll that is most often cited and about nine months uh, old at this point, but the most recent poll national that has been done on the topic indicated that about 97 percent of all Americans support expanding background checks. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's unheard of, right? When we say the vast majority, that grossly understates what we mean mm -hmm. in terms of that proposal. Even proposals, quite frankly, that maybe five or six years ago in the movement would have been viewed as more radical, but because we unquestionably have an epidemic of gun violence are gaining more national support, like banning of assault weapons, from the latest polls I've seen, the average in the nation is about 67% of Americans who support that kind of me measure. We just finished a poll in the state of Virginia, which has a historic opportunity on July 9th. They're holding a special session right. to consider gun safety measures. Uh, and we looked at districts gen in the General Assembly where you have a uh, NRA A-plus rated candidate to determine how constituents in those districts were feeling about the issue of gun safety measures. And what we found is that even among individuals who identified themselves as Trump supporters, supporters of President Trump, the vast majority of those individuals supported the very measures we're talking about right here. So I think they're, I'm not saying there has been a change because we have seen 
uh, popular support for these measures um, historically, but it's growing and it's growing across all demographics and all states, red or blue. And I think that that trend will continue until we actually finally do something about this issue to address uh, what, what is avoidable death and injury to the public because we, we don't focus or pay enough attention to how guns are sold and ensure that the public safety is protected in that transaction. <laughs> I will say in, in my research, uh, overall 55% say they supported quote-unquote policies that make it tougher to own guns. So as a summarizing port, let's go to the um, candidates. Um, can you give an overview of what some of the um, Democrats are proposing? I mentioned uh, Cory Booker. His includes, amongst others, uh, provisions, um, fingerprinting, uh, a license that would be time-limited to five years, amongst other. Um, uh, for example, we didn't mention this, so I'll mention here. He has a close what's termed um, the boyfriend loop, i.e. those who are uh, been found uh, either there's a restraining order or have um, been found guilty of domestic violence. So what, what are we seeing from the candidates? Uh, we're seeing something unprecedented from the candidates. Of course, we have a very large field on right, the Democratic right. side. But we have a number of front runners who are not just saying that they care about the issue and are passionate about it. Of course, many of them are sitting senators, and we can look at their records and know that they actually, when given the opportunity, do co-sponsor proposals around these issues that are very important and would move things forward. But they've also released specific plans and platforms for how they would tackle the issue. Booker is one. He released a 14-point plan probably up until a few days ago was one of the more comprehensive plans mm -hmm. we've seen from a candidate addressing what I would say is the life cycle of gun violence from how the gun is sold to how it's stored to how it's used and ensuring that appropriate enforcement is really a part of this process. We so often hear after a tragic shooting People from the National Rifle Association and their supporters, which are diminishing in number, say it's all about enforcement. Well, we agree with that, but you can't say that and at the same time work day in and day out to decrease enforcement dollars to give the enforcement agency no teeth, which is what has happened. The ATF has very little appropriated money to enforce the laws. The average gun dealer is inspected once every three or four years, and rarely are licenses revoked. And I think uh, Senator Booker, who we've worked with very closely over the years, well understands that it's not just passing the laws that's important. We do need to pass laws to expand background checks, to ensure that extreme risk laws are in place. Those are the laws that allow guns to be removed from an individual who's at risk. But we also have to make sure that the enforcement agencies charged with actually ensuring that the laws are enforced have the ability to do so. So that's a very comprehensive plan. Eric Swalwell out of California released really an equally comprehensive plan covering most of those issues. Kamala Harris took a slightly mm -hmm. different approach. She issued a plan that says 
this is what I will do by executive action. That's the power basically enshrined in the presidency to make policy or policy pronouncements through executive order. And she outlined a number of things that she would call for Congress to do in her first 90 days if elected as president. But if they didn't take the action to actually change the law, she would pass executive orders that required agencies, who obviously are reporting the directors back through the presidency, to take the action through administrative action, which I thought was an important Mm -hmm. contribution, actually, to the the debate. And then you see others who, uh, Hinkenlooper is another who's introduced a plan um, that would even call for, similar to Booker, a licensing and registration approach to things in addition to some other requirements. Uh, And Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg are both uh, talking about the need for a comprehensive approach to address what is an epidemic of gun violence. I guess the real news associated with this for the gun violence prevention movement is we can all remember the days, those of us who've been involved with this movement for a while, where it would be a celebration if you could get a single question asked in a presidential debate about the issue of gun violence. It would have been unheard of to think of candidates competing against one another to be as comprehensive as possible in their approach. But that does seem to be the situation we find ourselves in, and I think it's a reflection of the reality that gun violence is an epidemic and the American people want sensible solutions to it. Mm-hmm. And, and who would know better than Cory Booker, the former mayor, of course, of uh, Newark? Um, exactly. So let's, let's, yeah. go, let's go to, uh, I'm curious to ask you your thoughts about Virginia. You mentioned there will be a special session the governor called in response again to the 12 deaths in Virginia Beach on May 31st. Um, uh, you're a Virginia Tech grad, and we know what happened there. A few years ago, 32 people were killed, and I believe we're both Virginia residents. So again, he called for a special session. We've seen beyond Virginia Beach and Virginia Tech. We've seen there were the four shot, uh, four injured in the Alexandria ballpark shooting. There was an Appomattox shooting, a Roanoke shooting. There's been several of these in the state of Virginia. Um, The Virginia General Assembly, I'm sure as you're well aware, has voted down uh, several uh, gun proposals, uh, voting down a ban on sale of large-capacity magazines, background checks, assault weapons, uh, removing guns from domestic abusers, etc. Um, so what's your sense of how this plays out next month? I, I ask because uh, it, it could be, if, if the governor is successful, this could be a bellwether event in that uh, the state of Virginia, as you, as you noted, doesn't have necessarily at all a progressive a legislative track record on this subject. No, you're very right about that. It does have some progressive positive change in part because of the horrific tragedy of Virginia Tech. And at the time, uh, Tim Kaine, who was governor, mm-hmm. uh, made strides to ensure that the state systems were improved to ensure that mental health records were put into the system, which has been a persistent issue that we've seen Um, that was a problem. That spurred, actually, changes in federal law that required uh, more input into the system and better funding for the system. And we have other leaders in Virginia who've really taken up the issue. 
Terry McAuliffe did when he was governor, and of course Ralph Northam, who won in 2017, and the exit polls that that came through, and he was not expected necessarily to win, and certainly not with the margin that he got, which was over eight points, if memory serves. That was totally unpredicted. Um, and what what the turnout showed is that voters from the exit polls said the issue of guns were the second leading reason why they voted for Ralph Northam. Very, very interesting, of course, because that's an issue of extreme contrast with his opponents. Mm -hmm. So if that was driving people to the polls, it was driving them to the polls because they were making a priority of that issue and his commitment for change for Virginia. Unfortunately, that same result in terms of gun violence prevention champions was not enjoyed with the election results in the General Assembly. I think this special session is a really interesting moment in time. I don't think I could say it better than the way that Governor Northam said it, which is the legislative, the members of the General Assembly have a decision to make. Are they going to side with special interests? Or are they going to put Virginians first? That's certainly the way I think about it. Mm -hmm. But what would be required, and I hope will happen, is members really examining what's at stake here, which is real people, real lives, um, and an opportunity to pass legislation that the vast majority of their constituents actually agree should happen. And so we'll see what happens on July 9th. Um, For many of these districts, um, the Supreme Court actually just decided a couple of days ago on an appeal that the Virginia GOP had filed with the court to reconsider the redistricting that has been done in Virginia. The court held that the Virginia GOP had no standing to consider that appeal. And what that means is that the districts as redrawn stand, which make many of these districts, frankly, much more competitive than they had been previously. And for many of these districts, folks who have consistently opposed any kind of change in the interest of public safety have candidates running against them who are strong gun violence prevention champions. I'm sure some of them are going to be thinking about that when this special session happens. If they're not, they should be. Right, right. Well, uh, Chris, we're at our, our time limit here, so I do appreciate this uh, quick overview. Uh, let's hope for the best in our state, our home state, Virginia, and certainly we'll see what the Congress is able to do. I would think most positively about appropriating money since we've been headed in that direction over the last couple of years per the repeal of the so-called Dickey Amendment, but uh, time will tell. But again, thank you for your time. I'm genuinely very appreciative. Thank you, David. A pleasure to talk with you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.